G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As you know, these headlines are now everywhere. Yesterday, of course, the Prime Minister visited Christmas Island where asylum seekers who are currently on Manus Island and Nauru will likely be sent if they are deemed at risk to Australia if they apply for a medical transfer. The Morrison government has announced that Christmas Island is likely to reopen after they recently, as you'll recall, lost a vote in the parliament giving doctors a greater say over asylum seekers' medical treatment. There's lots of those things in the headlines, but today there's another story to tell. The untold story of God at work in refugees and asylum seekers on Nauru, and of course we'll include Christmas Island, and uh, there might be some other uh, connections too, to Manus Island, Papua New Guinea. Our special guest today and his wife have been pastors to asylum seekers, uh, dating back to Christmas Island, where they were pastors for 15 months, back in 2013-2014. And since then they've travelled to Nauru numerous times, in the role of pastor to asylum seekers and refugees. In fact, they have baptised around 40 refugees on Nauru in the ocean, and hundreds have become Christians while on Nauru. Jack Kampst and his wife Anne are those chaplains. Jack Kampst is joining us for this hour ahead, and Jack, a special welcome along to 2020. Thank you, Neil. Jack, I guess from the outset, it is a useful thing for us uh, to clarify that when we have this conversation over this next hour, that we're not actually going to be involving ourselves in a political debate and taking sides politically here. Uh, what are your uh, impressions about mm. the sorts of things that, uh, that you want to be able to communicate, mm. you, you want to be able to share over the coming hour? Yes, as you correctly said before, the untold story of what God has been doing uh, on Christmas Island and Nauru is very close to our hearts because he certainly has, and I would definitely like to share about what God has been, has been doing and about the people uh, that we have come to know, many of them. Let's talk about the experience that you had on Christmas Island mm. and so your your uh, connections to uh, refugees and asylum seekers goes back to 2013-2014. You were the appointed, commissioned, ordained uh, Christian minister on Christmas Island and you were dealing every day with people who were refugees and asylum seekers. Correct. Our, our work actually was uh, to be pastors to asylum seekers. That was our role. Uh, so every day during the week we would go into the detention centres on Christmas Island and we would uh, work with uh, asylum seekers, correct? Yeah. And, of course, that inside information that mm. you would have, uh, those personal connections to asylum seekers, gives you a special bond uh, with the overall uh, difficulties that asylum seekers face and yes. the, uh, the motives of their own hearts. What were your impressions, even... Currently and, and, mm. and dating back to Christmas mm. Island. So 
probably one of the, one of the strongest uh, memories I have early on in our ministry was when we were given a relig- religious room for people to come and talk to us. I remember one time we were sitting there waiting for someone to come, nobody came, and then all of a sudden 20 or so men uh, came into this room. Now, this is inside the detention centre. Uh, it's like a max- maximum security place where uh, Scott Morrison was yesterday. Uh, anyway, we're sitting there, and all of a sudden these 20 men come in, and they say to us, tell us about Jesus. <laughs> wow. Yeah, uh, so we we weren't looking for people. Uh, they came to us, and so I, on the spot, with no notice, I, I asked someone if they could speak English as an interpreter, and I shared the gospel story. Uh, in that first within that first week, and at the end, I thought, okay, well, who would like to uh, receive Jesus? And uh, about four or five hands went up, and and that has been the story of our work on Christmas Island. The hunger, the spiritual hunger, amongst the asylum seekers was. Quite amazing to us. Uh, interesting note, and I'm not sure how controversial that, uh, you know, you were not there specifically to proselytize. No. Uh, in fact, there probably were, and I'm, I'm only speculating mm. here, uh, some regulations about what you were able to do there. But mm. you could say, hey, uh, we're sitting here in this religious room, as you say, and then uh, all of a sudden 20 men turn up and uh, they are the ones spiritually hungry, spiritually seeking and uh, wanting to find out about the Christian God. Yes, and, and I would like to say to you that uh, this, Christ- this room that we were in didn't really work for us that well in the end. In the end, we chose to go into all the compounds. There's about nine compounds at the time with about 100 men. This is the single men's uh, uh, detention centre. We went into all the compounds, and every time we went in, people came to us. We, we never had to look. They saw us and they came, and I would start sharing a story about the gospel. It was an amazing experience. And, of course, in those years, uh, there was something like 50,000 uh, asylum seekers that came through, and they probably all sort of transitioned through Christmas Island at one point or another and then into detention centres in mm-hmm. Australia. And so every time you turned up, no doubt, there's a, there's a new fresh audience. No, no, well, actually, by the time we came in, in October 2013, the boats had stopped. Right. Uh, so the numbers were static, and when we came, there were about 2,500 asylum seekers uh, in the various detention centres. Uh, by the end of that year, they were starting to be transferred to Manus and Nauru. And of course, some of those are still on Manus and Nauru yeah. today. And but let's uh, while we're setting a foundation here, tell yes. us a little about the the background of the asylum seekers that you were connected with, because they are coming from mm. very difficult situations. And uh, you know, sometimes we might have our own uh, doubts about uh, their motivations. But uh, what were your general impressions? Yes, well. We have heard many, many stories. Uh, we would probably know hundreds of these people. We've heard many stories, and, and actually most asylum seekers, when we were there, uh, came from Iran. And we've heard so many stories about the oppression, the religious oppression for people seeking to find freedom to express their beliefs. Um, we know so many stories of people becoming Christians, having been found to have a Bible, and having to escape the country within a couple of weeks. Uh and uh, who later found themselves on Nauru. So we we know that there are many stories of, of God working in Iran and them wanting to come away because it was so oppressive. 
Well, this is a story that isn't told often, that many of those asylum seekers mm. uh, who found their way legally or illegally uh, via boats and through Christmas Island actually were escaping religious persecution because, yes. as you say, they'd been caught with a Bible. So mm. a lot of those asylum seekers actually coming from Christian foundations. Uh, I suppose that's a gen- that's. Maybe, I'm, you know, you give us a little context mm. here. No, no, I wouldn't say Christian foundation. I think uh, uh, often they were Muslims, but somehow God entered their uh, their life. Uh, um, I don't think we have the time now to tell these sort of stories, but uh, there are just stories where they met someone who had a Bible or they met someone who mentioned God and it opened a door and through this avenue, this, this, uh, this, this door, they came to, to believe in Jesus. But as soon as you become a Christian in Iran, life becomes quite dangerous. Let's jump to Nauru because uh, since those Christmas Island days, and you were there for uh, almost two years uh, in an official pastor role on Christmas Island, uh, your role hasn't been quite so formal with your visits to Nauru, but uh, it's something like nine times now Mm -hmm. you've visited Nauru. Uh, What are what are your impressions of of what the the circumstances are on Nauru? Mm. So, so. The connection with Nauru started. I just want to give a bit of background to that. So, um, one of my interpreters on Christmas Island, uh, who interpreted for me f- for a family, so he, he himself was a father and husband and with a young child. Well, he started. To, he was transferred to Nauru at the end of 2013, and we're going. What? This is he's 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 our friend. Our friend's been transferred, and after that, other people we knew were being uh, transferred. So we thought to ourselves, we've got to make a way to go to Nauru. I tried for months to find a way to Nauru, but everything was blocked. You can't just go to Nauru. You have to be sponsored. And finally, we found a way to be sponsored uh, so that we could visit uh, our friends on Nauru. And uh, this interpreter I've just mentioned, he is actually the last family to leave last week. Uh, So uh, that's the one story started on Christmas Island is now in the USA. Okay, and uh, I've got a few statistics we might uh, draw out shortly mm. about the current situation on Nauru. Uh, but interesting, as you say, uh, getting to Nauru is not easy, and it's not that there are blockages, from my understanding, that are coming from the Australian government, but uh, these blockages and visa restrictions are often coming from the Nauruan government. They don't want just anyone on Nauru, and so they make it harder to get to Nauru, but as you say, you had a sponsor, and there are, is someone on Nauru that is putting in a good word for you, and they're yeah. saying, yep, uh, we need to have Jack. Yes, I'm very grateful for the opportunity that the AOG Church on Nauru gave to Anne and I to come. Uh, it, uh, we've, we're very blessed. We realise that not everybody has that opportunity, uh, but they did, in the end, invite us, and, uh, and so that opened up a whole new door for us. Yeah. Jack, as I understand it, Nauru is very Christian, and uh, the majority of the population, in fact, there's only a small section of the population of Nauru that's not Christian, uh, a few Chinese, and uh, but there's something like a breakdown of two-thirds Protestant, a third Catholic, but a uh, lot of very, very Christian-founded uh, religious people on Nauru. Mm. Well, the superintendent of the AOG church, his opinion was that, say, about half of Nauru would call themselves Christian, but um, anyway, figures are figures. 
Yeah, figures are figures. Yeah. Uh, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, with the population on Nauru being so Christian, mm. uh, this capacity that they have to sponsor someone like you to come, mm. and you're mixing not only with Nauru and people, but because the refugees, asylum seekers, are free to roam around, then you've got easy access to those asylum seekers. Well, not at the beginning. For the first uh, couple of years, they were detained uh, absolutely, like they uh, fenced in. Fenced in. Yes, absolutely. For the first couple of years, and they and they were living in tents for all of that time. If, now you you got to understand that Nauru, uh, four and a half hours flying northeast from Brisbane, uh, is only about a hundred kilometres south of the equator. Every day is hot. Uh, and and uh, the asylum seekers were living in tents uh, for two or three or some even five years, actually, in tents and uh, in incredible heat, humidity. Um, and these are not pleasant situations for, for, for families, for example. Uh, they, they really struggled with that. Uh, and, uh, and ordinary Nauruans, uh, what about their living conditions? How did it compare to how an ordinary Nauruan, uh, who in some sense has uh, asylum seekers uh, all of a sudden on their doorstep, how do ordinary Nauruans live? Mm. So Nauru used to be very rich. It used to be the richest country per capita in the uh, late 80s or early 90s. Uh, but then the money that they had saved up through the phosphate uh, business, uh, some of that money was misappropriated and Nauru now is not a rich country. In fact, Nauru now is very reliant on asylum seekers and refugees for their income because there is no industry on Nauru. So when the asylum seekers started coming to Nauru, Nauruans thought it was good. It was good because it provided work and money uh, because without that, the un unemployment rate was uh, quite high. So they... They, they loved the fact that they came, but I think they struggled to understand the plight of the asylum seekers, and this has been a continual problem. Even the church on Nauru has struggled to really understand the suffering and the trauma experienced by asylum seekers. Okay, there's plenty to talk about here, and in a moment we'll take a break, but I don't want to go to a break without actually coming back to what I mentioned in the introduction, mm -hmm. that in your own personal experience... Uh, you were a part of the baptisms mm. of as many as 40 uh, people who are asylum seekers uh, in the ocean there in Nauru mm. and mm. that hundreds had mm. in fact come to Christ. Uh, give us some impression mm. of the openness, the spirituality, the climate of what's happening in those sorts of asylum, uh, in, the, those, uh, in those centres. Well, I think, to be honest, it all started on Christmas Island um, uh, where uh, many people actually became Christians on Christmas Island. Um, but we had a rule on Christmas Island that we would not baptise asylum seekers there because there was a concern that some people might misuse that situation in order to get a visa or something like that. See, So we did not baptise people on Christmas Island. When we went to Nauru in 2014, September 2014, we went into the detention centre uh, and on a Sunday afternoon at 2 o'clock, the, the, one of the churches would run a little service inside the detention centre in the prayer room. Now, we were there in September at this, at this uh, service. We were sitting around afterwards and, and a lady said, J could Jack baptise us right here and now in the, inside the detention centre? She, she said this to my wife and my wife said to me, well, look, I'll ask Jack. 
And I thought, why not? These people are f- followers of Jesus. They have we know we've we've known them for well over a year. So what we did was we did uh, we uh, found a little area outside the the prayer tent uh, where there was pebbles. We had people bring um, bottles of water. <laughs> yep. And we baptized people by pouring bottles. I can, it's an emotional thing to even think of, isn't it? So, uh, so you know, sometimes we think of baptism as that full immersion yeah. baptism, and we couldn't some do of it that there. We couldn't, couldn't do, do it, it there. So but we, we just poured bottles of water over them. water yes. over them, bottled we, water. We asked them, "Would you like to be sprinkled, or would you like a whole bottle?" But they all wanted whole bottles. <laughs> yeah. Hey, it's a hot day on Nauru. Yeah. Why wouldn't you prefer the hot, the whole yeah. bottle? Yes. So there was eighteen people that day. Eighteen, uh, and it was a wonderful experience. But after they had the freedom to be released uh, into the community, uh, then we baptised people in the, in the ocean. Yes, that's right. We'll talk some more yeah. about baptism and just how powerful that is and whether or not that, in fact, creates a risk uh, given the mix of asylum seekers all living together. This is 2020 with Neil Johnson, helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. A different story to hear about Nauru today, and you can be a part of our conversation. Our talkback line is open 1-800-316-316, 1-800-316-316. You can leave a note too on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Jack Kampst is our guest, a Christian chaplain to refugees and asylum seekers. He did lots of time in a formal role on Christmas Island back in 2013. 14, and has visited Nauru at least nine times uh, over the years with his wife, Anne. Uh, we're taking calls. In fact, why don't we take a call uh, straight away and uh, we'll see where we're going through to uh, in our conversation. Jason is in Moralbark. Hello, Jason. Welcome along. Good, oh, good morning, um, Neil and Andrew. Uh, it's Jack, may but uh, yeah, but what Jack, are your thoughts, Jack, Jason? Jack, may God bless you and your wife in your ministry and in what he has for your life. I'm inspired by your story, and I'd like to say those people who became Christian and people who were baptized, you, I'd like to say this to you, you will never know this out of heaven who you are impacting upon, but they will thank you in the end. Uh, Jason, a nice thought there. A quick response from Jack. Thanks, Jason. I appreciate your heart. Okay. Talk back line open, 1-800-316. Thanks so much to Jason for your call. We're talking in some sense here about uh, the real Nauru, and I'm not sure uh, what you're across just with the latest figures of who's there still on Nauru, Jack, but... Um, uh, from some detail that uh, I was able to glean, some current statistics from the Refugee Council of Australia, and they've been gleaning figures, because as we know, the government's a little secretive about uh, the figures, and uh, they've got their reasons for that, and there's no criticism or endorsement even to that uh, particular policy. But but there are some figures that have been gleaned from the last round of Senate estimates late last year. And just a few days ago, there was a release of some details. Uh, on the 28th of February, it was reported there were 394 people left on Nauru, 
580 in PNG, 493 resettled to the US, 265 people had been rejected for resettlement to the US, and the last four children had departed for the US. So uh, no more children on the island, mm-hmm. uh, and the numbers dwindling, and uh, of course there's all sorts of controversy. But but uh, So your most recent impression about numbers and uh, the sorts of, uh, you know, the numbers that you, you, could, uh, you could reflect on? Well, if you're talking about numbers left on Nauru, uh, I think those numbers are about right, yes. Uh, so not many left at all. So about 400, four to 500, yes. That was my impression. Four to 500. Yeah. And, uh, and so those numbers, are they mostly men because the women and children had been removed a little earlier or, or there was a separation of families, uh, you know, impressions along those lines? Well, there's uh, single women, there's married couples with no children, and there's also single men, yes. Okay, well, and uh, so far as the political situation, we've said we're not going to get into yeah. the politics, but both sides do politicise this. And is that to you, I mean, not to get into the politics, but a disadvantage to uh, to the welfare of individuals, just the fact that they are political football being kicked around? Yes, uh, so I, I just want to make it clear to everybody that um, I don't. My stance is not political, and it never has been. Uh, our role as pastors has simply been as pastors. We uh, we're not we we're not paid by an organisation, not paid by the government. It was a missionary kind of role. Uh, all funds uh, in our work was pro- provided by churches and friends and uh, and family. Uh, so we, um, uh, yeah. So. I lost my train of thought there for a bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah. And, uh, and we won't be political in our conversation and, uh, we'll draw a line under that if, uh, if there are calls that uh, move us in that direction. No, I, I, sorry, I should really, uh, uh, finish that question now. I know that you've uh, reminded me. Yep. So yes, the, the, the politics, uh, surrounding r- refugees on Nauru and of course Manus, uh, yes, has been very, a lot of it has been troubling because, uh, unfortunately, a lot of what we hear, uh, is, as far as I'm aware, is not true, and I know because I'm an eyewitness. Like I, I, I don't glean my uh, my thoughts from the media, but I've seen it with my own eyes, and I've seen many things I wish I had not seen. People so sick mentally that they've shut down, um, that they refuse to get out of their their huts in their living quarters because they have become so um, mentally shut down, socially shut down. Uh, in the end, they even started to shut down spiritually because the, the Nauruan church uh, didn't always seem to really get uh, their situation and, and so many refugees even stopped uh, going to church. So this is all very uh, quite a sad situation overall as far as that goes. Uh, now, if we're reflecting on the Nauruan church, is that because they were feeling threatened with, uh, with refugees coming into their services? Because, uh, as you say, more recent developments, uh, free to come and go around the island and therefore free to go to church on Sunday. And so uh, there became some strained relations. Is that the way you call it? I think the problem is, uh, as I said before, that... Their own suffering, their own circumstances were not really understood by Nauruans. So I think there are many uh, refugees who needed pastoral care, but there was no pastoral care available to them. There was no visitation, uh, which is one of the reasons that Anne and I felt so compelled to go to Nauru when we could, uh, to offer pastoral care. Now, I'm not 
having a go at the uh, Nauruan church, uh, you know, they were doing what they what was what they thought was best. But uh, so I don't really have a problem with that. But I think they they did have a, a problem understanding uh, the situations the refugees found them in uh, cells in, and also the, when they went to church, uh, they would there be worshiping, but 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 the church wouldn't really reach out pastorally so much. I think this is a really difficult situation for the refugees. And what you highlight here is the need mm. for that sort of support and encouragement that yeah. might come from uh, those equivalent denominations, perhaps in Australia, to be supportive of the churches on Nauru so that they can more effectively be uh, embracing of the challenges because perhaps those church leaders on Nauru are perhaps not as well equipped to be able to deal with that. I, I don't really think that that would really work. Uh, I think the Nauru church has its own identity. They have their own way of doing things. Uh, and so I, I don't think there's a great connection with the church in Australia. Jack, uh, let's take a call or two. Let's first of all uh, hear from uh, from Bruce, who is in Miles in Queensland. Hello, Bruce. Welcome along. G'day guys, how you going? Bruce, thanks so much for your patience. I know you've been waiting since yeah. before the news. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, um, I've been listening intermittently because I've had a tire on the time machine trying to change it. Couldn't hear it very often. I listen on the internet, which um, Telstra needs to be tarred and feathered and cutting out the flop and the reception all the time. Okay. Yeah, I don't get reception on radio here. But anyway, that's beside the point. You're not the only one uh, who uh, sometimes finds it difficult to listen to, but uh, when you want to listen in, you find a way. And Bruce, I appreciate that you uh, are uh, resilient enough to be able to keep on listening. So what are your thoughts for our conversation? All right. Well, one of the things I'd like to encourage the lovely pastor and what he's doing, um, I heard a testimony of him. This was in the Middle East somewhere. I'm not sure which country it was, but there was a mosque of 40 members in this mosque. One of them actually got visited by Jesus himself during the night, and it's a common thing that happens nowadays. Jesus himself takes it upon himself to visit them. Anyway, he, next morning at 5 o'clock in the morning when they went for prayers, this bloke said to the bloke next to him, hey, I had a weird dream last night. He said, so did I. The next bloke said, so did I. It turns out the whole 40 of them in the previous night were visited by Jesus himself. The whole lot of them got saved. Those yeah, are amazing did. stories, Bruce. Yeah. And uh, look, I'm familiar with those stories too. People tell these stories and it's not somehow rather unique. It seems to be quite frequent uh, to the yeah. point where these sorts of things uh, get around. Let's get an impression from our special guest, Jack Kamst. Jack, uh, when you say that a lot of people actually have had experiences with God before arriving on our shores, is this the sort of story that you've heard as well? Yes, uh, people having visions and dreams of Jesus uh, is common. Uh, even with our work on Christmas Island and Nauru, people have had dreams of Jesus. Uh, so I, I remember one story, uh, one one man one time uh, came to me and said, Jake, I had a dream. I had a dream about uh, about a shepherd and he had sheep, but he was on the other side of a, of a door <laughs> and um, and and there was a stairs leading up to the door. Jake, what does this dream mean? And I said to him, well, well, I said, Shahab was his name. I said, Shahab, I think you meant to go up those stairs and through that door and meet that shepherd who's Jesus. 
and um, and then we prayed together. I met him a few days later, and he came running towards me, and he said to me, "You know, Jack, for months I have not been able to sleep uh, properly. I've had nightmares, uh, bad dreams. I've been to see psychiatrists. I've seen psychologists. I've seen doctors. I've never they've never been able to help me." Uh, I've never been able to sleep, but after I accepted Jesus, I've slept like a baby. That's a beautiful story. Mm. And uh, I want to say thank you so much to Bruce from Miles uh, for raising that point. Our talkback line is open, 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to join in our conversation. Jack, when you are dealing with asylum seekers, refugees, and places like Nauru and where you were ministering there on Christmas Island, uh, baptisms became a regular part of what you were doing. You were hearing of hundreds coming to Christ. some of the stories about how those baptisms came to be yeah. are, are quite amazing. What are, what are the ones that come to mind for you? Well, one Sunday, um, I was meant to baptize about six people after church. And I went out of the church, and, I, and this man approached me, a tall man, and he said to me, Jack, I'm ready to be baptized. And I, said, and I looked at him, and I thought, I don't even know this man. Uh, I said, well, I don't know you. Um, what can you tell me? And within five minutes, he told me his testimony and, uh, and he and I knew that he was uh, a genuine believer. Uh, actually, at the beginning, he said, "Jacob, I'm, I'm ready to be baptized, and I've got my sp- a spare set of clothes here." Uh, I found it all quite humorous that uh, uh-huh. that uh, this all happened within five minutes, and I baptized him. And his um, testimony as a Christian has been ongoing, and he's a, he's a great he's a lovely Christian man. And so, was that testimony something that unfolded from his homeland or on the journey to Australia? Mm. How did those things eventuate? So, uh, he has a wife and two children. He saw Anne and I on Christmas Island, but he never approached us. Uh, but he knew about us. But he became a Christian on Nauru. Yeah. But I, I have another story. Uh, it might have been the same Sunday when I was baptizing this person, and I was in the water baptizing, and then all of a sudden this man comes walking in the in the ocean, and he said to me, "Jack, I want to be baptized." I'm going, "I don't even I don't know you, right? Uh, maybe another time I'll do that." So he he turned around, he went back out, and I baptized some other people, and then he came again a second time. He said, "Jack, I want to be baptized." I said, "Well, I." I think we sort of already talked about this. So he went back again. And then after I'd finished baptizing the people I had baptized, he came a third time. And he said, Jack, I want to be baptized. And I looked at the, uh, one of the Naruan uh, pastors and I said, what do I do? And he said, it's okay. I baptized him. Um, and his journey has been ongoing as well. So it wasn't just a, um, a one-off, but, but his Christian journey has been ongoing. And uh, so it's just how God works. How can you explain that? Because when, as a Christian minister of the gospel, you're not just lining people up and saying, hey, who wants to come over here and get baptized? You want to actually know Mm. that there is a personal testimony, that there is a journey that they've been on, and they have discovered Jesus Christ as not only Savior but Lord, and you want to know that you know they're actually committed to a journey of following Jesus. And for some, uh, no doubt on Nauru, uh, that increases the danger that they may face or the danger that they've come from, but even in, no doubt, uh, the circumstances in a detention center. Uh, but what are, what are your thoughts about uh, you know people and their genuine commitment mm. and their desire to be baptized? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, look, I... Uh, 
I have to be honest and say, look, I know there are some people who were baptised who were found really not to be genuine followers of Jesus. Um, I suppose I could say, look, pe- the people on Nauru are a bit like people in Australia. Like we have many people who are genuine. There's always some that are not. Yep. And, of course, we found that amongst them as well. I know I baptised a couple of people uh, in the tent, two, two out of the 18, which in the end, look, I have to leave it to God, but I must admit I'm not sure. So, uh, but we have to leave that to God, I think. Yeah. And as you say, as you know, you're looking at the Nauruan pastor as yeah. to say, well, what do I do here? I'm not yeah. sure about this one. And there's this sort of interaction between the Nauruan church and what you were there as the visiting pastor and uh, together making that assessment as yeah. to baptizing people. Well, actually, when I said Nauruan pastor, uh, he was actually from the Solomon Islands, but he's Nauru- he's become a Nauruan, uh, and he actually ran a church called um, uh, oh, I forget now, but it's like an international where all the international people uh, uh, come. So yeah, so through through him, I was able able to have a good connection. Yeah, and your encouragement to those believers, those who had made decisions to follow Christ, was that uh, if and when you get off Nauru. Uh, get baptized in Australia or wherever you're sent. Uh, yes. What was what were people's uh, reactions? You know what uh, you know. What's this pressure that you're putting on me to get baptized? I, I guess, uh, but the encouragement was there. Yes. Yeah, so the 18 people we baptized in the detention center, I, I made it clear to them: look, uh, it's you are baptized, but if you want to be immersed, because the Bible, te- I think, I think the Bible teaches that immersion is a better representation of. What happens to you spiritually? So when you get to Australia, or sorry, I should really clarify that. I'm not, I'm not sure if I said Australia. I said, look, if you if you get to Australia, or if you get out, or if you have the opportunity to be immersed, well, take that opportunity. Uh, so wherever you are, uh, then take the opportunity and do it. Perhaps in what we might describe, if we looked at Romans chapter six, uh, for example, uh, what you would, you know, when we talk about. Uh, being buried with Christ and raised again. Of course, this is the context of baptism, isn't it? So we sort of think of being buried under the water, being raised out of the water into resurrection life. Uh, so that's the that's the image that you get when you uh, take Romans chapter 6 and you're talking about baptism. So when you're getting water bottles poured over you and, you know, the confession of faith in that public setting and the desire to be baptized, this is what makes a person baptized. Uh, but, you know, as you say... When you get to another location, go through and do what a, a, a more biblical uh, approach to baptism. Yes, that's right. Yes, I do know that uh, in my absence, another pastor on Nauru did choose to baptise many refugees, but I know that unfortunately, it became a, it became a little bit of a thing, you know, to be baptised, and uh, we never. Want, I, I did warn against that. I said, look, don't. Please be careful when you baptise people. Make sure that you check them out. Uh, but I think quite a few perhaps fell through the cracks. But I, I, I tried not to happen that to me. But uh, I think it did happen a bit. And, of course, Jack, you're not the only minister of the gospel visiting Nauru. And no doubt there'd be so many others that have their own stories of baptizing and leading people to Christ. And then, of course, the Nauru church, they would have their own stories, too, about uh, the people coming to Christ and and being baptized. So we're talking huge numbers of people here. Well, I think baptism-wise, I'm not sure. I think maybe two to three hundred, something like that. Yep. That's as far as I'm aware, yeah.
1-800-316-316 if you want to join our conversation today and not getting into politics so deeply that we have a politicised conversation because we're talking about the work of God on Nauru but let's just reflect back for a few moments here Jack because a little while ago uh, we did say that there were some all, all sorts of uh, dreadful mental challenges yes. and uh, you might say these are health challenges uh, and of course uh, we could reflect on the fact that the uh, the Morrison government lost that vote in the parliament and the Karen Phelps bill allows then a change because it was supported by Labor uh, for a change in the way that asylum seekers would have access to Australia. Uh, let's just reflect on for a few moments the health challenges that you might have observed and let's just say you're not a doctor uh, but the sorts of things you observed about the health of people on Nauru. So um, I should say that uh, in 2017, most of 2017, my wife and I were living in Lebanon, working with Syrian refugees, teaching English to Syrian refugee children. At that time, we were not uh, connected very much with what was happening on Nauru. And we also noticed that on the news, Nauru didn't get much exposure during 2017. We came back to Australia beginning of 2018, and because I hadn't, had not heard much about what was happening on Nauru, I kind of assumed that the refugees had integrated with the Nauruan population and that they were doing well and that they perhaps started to establish themselves in this way, that way. So that's what I thought. I thought, anyway, I applied to get a visa and I went to Nauru March 2018, uh, just 12, month, 12 months ago. Well, when I came there, I was shocked. I was really shocked. I couldn't. Be, I just couldn't believe the mental condition of people. So my idea, which I think perhaps many Australians might have this, you know, that things must be fine in Nauru. You know, they have integrated and doing this and that. But I was really shocked. I was. I was deeply disturbed to see the mental condition of virtually all of the refugees. They were all down. They were all depressed. They all had no hope. The biggest issue was no hope. Indefinite detention. Uh, is, a, is, an, is something that affects the mind, indefinite de- detention. When you see no end, when you see no hope, when you don't know when, when th- this thing's going to end, that really uh, plays with people's minds. And after five years, uh, people's minds were shutting down. I noticed that in March last year, and I was very shocked. Uh, and I, just, I, keep, I kept on thinking to myself, how can we do this to people? How can we do this to people? I, I just couldn't come to grips with that so yeah and over so many years as christian believers uh, wanting to have a compassionate response to the stranger at the gate uh, to have that biblical jesus response to people who were refugees and and recognizing at the same time that there were a lot of people who died at sea in coming to australia in what is called illegal uh, being bo- illegal boat people so there's this balance uh, that christians have have always sort of been challenged with but it never gets us away from this idea that what we want to do is put pressure on our politicians so that they do find a compassionate response 
that at the same time does protect our borders. In what you've been seeing, is are there developments around that 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 come with this this change? Uh, insofar as uh, what's happened in the parliament, let's let get. I am going. We are getting a little bit political here, but uh, and when, without taking sides, what are your thoughts with the, the changes? So when you say changes. What did you mean by that? Well, you've got this now capacity for doctors to say mm. that this person needs to have some extra treatment. Yes. And, uh, of course, what that does is open up the door to come to Australia. Look, uh, I have a good friend on Nauru, uh, and I've built up a friendship with him. He's like a pastor to his own people on Nauru. He's Iranian. He really loves God, and he goes out and helps other refugees um, while he himself has to deal with his own issues. Now, he started to get a medical problem, and it was kidney stones. Now, in Australia, my understanding is if you get kidney stones, you need to get it looked at within a month, or it will become a bigger problem. Yep. Well, this, my friend, went to see if he could get help for his kidney stones, but he was just given this or that, but he was never given what he needed uh, to fix his problem. So, unfortunately, his kidney stones became worse and worse, and he had them for about two years. I mean, it's hard to imagine. Then he had an ultrasound taken, and it showed that his kidney stones, uh, two of them, were well over uh, a centimetre, like a, a one mm. and a half centimetres. Mm. And he told me that at times he would be peeing uh, blood. Uh, he would even his, uh, he would do whatever he could to relieve the pain. Finally, at the last moment, they flew him to Taiwan for fairly urgent and severe medical treatment to fix his kidney stones. Now, this is just, this is my friend, a Christian brother who saw, uh, who, whose own cousin of 25 years was hanged in Iran. And this is my friend. And uh, this is how they treated him. I, I just don't know how to really cope with that. Yeah. And there was a two year delay yes. uh, for something that could have been yes, treated. That's right. Um, we'll take one more call. Robin is on the line from Mount Morgan. Hi, Robin. Welcome along. Need to be yes. quick. Yes, hi. Um, this is very much on my heart as well. I, I really think that I, I could probably help a lot. I'm actually waiting for my own refugees. I'm preparing for them because um, this is very much on my heart. And I get frustrated because there are political, there's political um, hold-ups everywhere. And, you know, there must be other people out there too wanting to help them. But, you know, it's very frustrating. All I can do is just look to God for the opening and just pray that the right connections will happen so that the door will be open. But, um, you know, I've had my own issues from my, throughout my life, depression and whatever. I know what it's like. Um, I was a psych nurse and I'm also, um, I was also a teacher, an English teacher of language. So I know that I can help out. Um, it's just waiting for the open door because I'm waiting and waiting and waiting and preparing um, Robin, but, you know, good points you're making there. And, of course, there are a number of cities and towns around Australia that have their own programs. A lot of churches have their own refugee connection programs and wanting to support. Uh, other towns may not have those sorts of things in place yet, and uh, perhaps there's not as many as asylum seekers being uh, brought into those towns. But uh, just a, on a, we've only got a couple of minutes left in our conversation. Uh, Jack, what churches can do today when they come across people who are refugees in their own communities? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, I think it all starts with the heart. If you love people, uh, there's a verse that talks about... Uh, uh, do unto others as you would them 
do unto you? Well, refugees in Australia, they obviously are in, in a new culture, don't have fr- family and friends around them. So if you can just visit them, if nothing else, if you know where they live, visit them and strike up a friendship, that would mean an awful lot. And I know a lot of people in Brisbane, for example, are doing that. They are they are making connections, looking after them, helping them to fill out forms and organise this and that. So that's a really practical thing they can do. And is there a sense in which the hope that you have in your own heart as a believer, as you begin to strike up that friendship, that hope is contagious. And yeah. for people who've gone through what they have been through, this is the hope they're looking for. Yes, uh, and uh, the, the response that, that, that you get from the refugees uh, is just wonderful. You f- you'll find you are blessed as much as they are from you. Okay, I want to say thank you so much to Robin in Mount Morgan for your insight today. And uh, we are drawing to a close our conversation. Jack, is there a, some way, uh, is there, I don't know, do you have some sort of a website? Is there a connecting point that people can have to you? I mean, I always like to leave some sort of way that people can connect mm-hmm. with you beyond our conversation. Uh, is there a particular point? So thank you, Neil. Uh, so I do actually send out regular uh, updates about our story, this is our story uh, about our connection with people on Nauru and, and refugees that have come to Australia. So we send, up, send out updates, uh, easy to read stories. So if people are interested in that, uh, um, I could give, well, it's usually through, it's via email. Okay, it's an email. Yeah. Okay, well, um, what, if we, uh, what if I get your email after our conversation and then if anyone is wanting to make contact with you, uh, contact Vision and uh, I'll be able to pass on that email. Sure. Uh, Jack Kampst is our guest, and we've been hearing just uh, some amazing stories. Uh, Forty baptisms of asylum seekers and refugees, hundreds coming to Christ over the years, uh, from those days in Christmas Island uh, to Nauru, and uh, of course there'd be other stories from Manus Island undoubtedly. But Jack Kampst, just great to get your insights today. I want to thank you so much for uh, humbly uh, telling us these stories, and uh, emotional at times, but I know that listeners will be enlarged in their understanding about what's happening on Nauru and with the situation uh, so far as this Christian approach of do uh, requiring compassion and at the same time expectant of our political leaders to do their job and protect our borders as well. It's not one or the other, it's both. Uh, but Jack, thank you so much for taking some time to share your heart with us today on 2020. Yeah, thank you, Neil, and thank you everyone for listening. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.